Yeah, so I'm really excited, um, even though I'm going to be out of town, that um, I'm able to record myself this time with uh, my colleague, uh, Professor Richie Marufo. Hello. Um, so he's, you know, the, the podcast master here, and, um, you know, um, he's also a Vonnegut expert. So that's why I wanted to have him on today <laughs> as a guest speaker. Um, and so we're going to talk about the story, but I want to pick his brain about uh, Vonnegut as well, since... Um, you know, he, he, um, he's a big fan, and so he can provide a lot of expertise on his style. Um, and so in that sense, Richie, if you could give us a little bit of background in terms of, um, like, what is it that our students should know about Vonnegut to understand <clears throat> his story? Right, right. Well, I'm certainly no expert by any means, uh, but definitely a fan. I, uh, I, I've i come to grow. I mean, really, I got into his work in high school. And I think for, for most people, I think their introduction to Vonnegut is in high school, whether it be through Harrison Bergeron, what we'll be talking about today, or Slaughterhouse-Five. Uh, those are probably the two most read texts. Uh, but really, I, I kind of fell in love with his, with his style, which at, at times is, is simple, mm-hmm. but incorporates elements of, of satire that is strangely human, you know, and, that, and we'll talk a little bit about Vonnegut's uh, bio, biography as we talk about the text. But I just <clears throat> I found a way to connect with him at that I thought <clears throat> he would talk about these, these uh, dark things in society in a almost comical way. Now, the reason why I think this is important to know is because if you're barely reading him for the first time, I think it's important to think about the context. You know, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of people insist that it's hard to get into his work without understanding his other works, mm. you know? Um, yeah. And so a lot of my favorite works of his aren't those two main. Mm. They're like these crazy science fiction set in the future, like with strange literary devices, Yeah. you know, uh, <clears throat> that involves time travel and uh, speaking like Mar, like these weird Martian singing creatures and, mm. you know, a ghost, <laughs> a ghost narrator and from a shipwreck talking about, the end of the world and, and and human society trying to rebuild itself in Galapagos. Like, there's all sorts mm. of crazy stories. Um, but in the end, there's still a heart to his work mm. that I think he tries to bring out. And uh, you definitely see it in Harrison Bergeron, which I think is included in a lot of um, literature courses. So he's not, he's not, basically what you're saying is he's, he's not a Pope writer, right? He's not no. just like doing this just for the gratuitous of it. <clears throat> right. And... and- Sci-fi itself, I mean, don't get me started, but, you know, uh, it's the only sci-fi story that they're reading. But, um, you know, science fiction itself, right, is so important. You know, people kind of just might think about it as like a popcorn, right? you know, adventure. Um, but it's the role that science fiction plays, not just for science itself, but for society, I think is underrated. Right. Absolutely. And, and now because of uh, shows like Black Mirror, I think, mm. though... More people are starting to understand the the connection yeah. uh, that you were talking about here. So yeah. <clears throat> let's dive into the story, man. Mm-hmm. I think uh, and and uh, any little things we can bring up about Vonnegut along the way, and and just a couple things about him. Right, mm-hmm. he's born in the 1930s in uh, Indianapolis. Uh, he did serve in uh, in the war, World War Two, and mm. and uh, he was <clears throat> he was a prisoner of war mm. during the, and he was uh, actually he survived the the air bombing of Dresden in Germany. Mm. And, uh, you know, I think part of his, like, dark humor is, is the fact that he, one of the reasons why he was saved because he was, like, underground, like, sto- like 
storing something or hmm. you know yeah oh that yeah that kind of so reminds we'll, me of something at the end of Harrison Virgin that we'll get to but, right yeah right, we'll get to it hmm. so uh what can we say about the story um well you know one of the things that I'm sure is going to strike our students first is um you know we think of equality right as a good thing but you know very much like animal farm right where you have um you know, I think it's the podium, if I remember correctly. Have you guys read so, that in class? Uh, no, but um, <clears throat> just kind of if, if my students read it. Okay. Um, you know, if, um, like, you know, it goes something like um, um, everyone's, everyone is equal, mm-hmm. but some of us are more equal <clears throat> than others. And it's that same idea here. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I think uh, this is a really great first line, you know, where he imagines the future. Mm-hmm. The year was 2081 and everyone was finally equal. Like, I just, it's yeah. funny. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know already. Like, it, it, and then as he expands on what that actually means, you mm-hmm. know, uh, there's, there is a something to dive into, right? Uh, he says they aren't only equal before God and the law, right? Mm-hmm. The law. So in this case, mm-hmm. one of the aspects of the story is thinking about the government, right? Mm-hmm. And its relationship to the public. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's such a fascinating mm-hmm. story to explore that, right? Because... You know, if any of my students have read or seen the adaptation of V for Vendetta, mm. you know, it's also about like revolution, mm-hmm. right? And um, one of the things that, one of the ways that my students can be able to analyze this story in, in the second essay, which is a research essay, mm-hmm. is like Marxist criticism, you know, and in Marxist criticism, it's all about like, you know, the, the proletariat who are, um, you know, the, the working class, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like you and me. And then the bourgeoisie, which is the ruling class, right? People with power, you know, people in our day in Congress. Um, and you see that divide here to some degree. Yeah. And in, in Marxism, you know, it is important, right? That is how change comes about through a revolution. Absolutely. And uh, it's important to note that Vonnegut was absolutely a supporter of the workers and workers' movements and unions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can see that here, yeah. too, a bit. Yeah. Um, and in terms of that relationship, you know, it really you begin to think about, well, you know, it's po- it's a question that's posed in V for Vendetta, actually. Um, is it like we should we be afraid of the government or should the government be afraid of its people? Right. You know, and in some sense, it's kind of like like a, a false dichotomy. Right. Yeah. But I think it's something to think about in terms of like how we set up the government and how the government is supposed to answer to us, right, with what it is that we want to see. Um, you know, because we have, we elect people to make the decisions for us. Right. You know, and we hope that the decisions that they make will ultimately benefit society as opposed to the detriment, which is, you know, what we see here. Yeah, and it's, it's hard to dive into an analysis of <clears throat> modern-day politics from, from the theory, you know, to the practice. You mm-hmm. know, we can argue that, um, it doesn't exactly work out that yeah. way. But ever since the, the formation of the United States, you know, some of the best writers have always ta- discussed the concept of, you know, the role of government and, and the people mm-hmm. and they should have. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, uh, I, you know, I was, thinking, you know, man, our, our references, yeah. I was thinking of Watchmen, too, when you're mm. thinking about the, yeah, I'm not stuck in here with you. You're stuck in here with me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> same yeah. same kind of idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but really, I, I just go back to, to questioning, you know, from early writers, you know, what, how much are we willing to sacrifice in terms mm-hmm. of our, our freedoms, our, our liberties mm-hmm. in order for, in, you know, for protection for, mm-hmm. 
whatever government services provide. And I think there's a big tension in that because everyone disagrees. Yeah, with that. that's a very good point, Richie. And it reminds me also of Ben Franklin, you know, who said, you know, those who would sacrifice a little liberty, a little freedom, right, for more security, you know, he disagreed with that idea. Right. And so it's kind of like, are we willing to give up our rights simply so that the government can can have can protect us, right? And in this case, I mean, you see that, right? Let's talk about that government yeah. that, that Vonnegut sets up here. Yeah. What do we know about them? Man. <laughs> um, well, you know, it's kind of interesting, right? Because in a sense, everyone, in a sense, right, everyone is equal. And like there's been apparently hundreds of amendments, right, that's been passed right, right. To, to make that happen. So the government has, so unlike our government right now, which is dreadlocked, at least that government is, seems to be productive, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, this is a kind of, I like to kind of think about it as like that reverse equality, right? Where, in, like to me, equality is about bringing people up. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you have people who suffer discrimination because of their race, their disability, their gender, et cetera, religion. And so you bring them up to society so that they have the same privileges and rights as anyone who isn't discriminated against. Right. Um, here, it's kind of the opposite. And it's both superficial and, you know, in terms of like people who are like, you know, handsome. Right? So if you're physically rights. attractive, you wear a mask or mm-hmm. wear a rubber nose, <laughs> yeah. shave off your eyebrows, all those silly things. Yeah. Which again, you know, brings up Vonnegut's style here of... Uh, it's it's silly mm-hmm. and, a, and a very like scary, ter- like terrifying thing that if mm-hmm. happened in real life would be terrible. But here he is kind of making it a little silly. Yeah, I mean that's so interesting, right? The idea that Harrison is in some ways a terrorist, right? I right. mean he, he, he Vonnegut is brilliant here in being able to make Harrison into both this kind of freedom fighter, mm-hmm. but also a terrorist at the same time, right? I mean, he is like terrorizing these people at the theater, right? You know, about watching just the ballet, um, uh, you know, by declaring himself the emperor. Mm -hmm. Um, And, 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 you know, he is nevertheless gifted, right? I mean, he's like, you know, labeled as a genius and all these handicaps. And they make a note of of the extra attention they've they've made to handicap him. Yeah. In terms of weight and and just disfiguring him. Yeah. And, you know, despite that, right, he is able to break free. And so it's kind of interesting in terms of thinking about him as an Mm -hmm. anti-hero as well. Um, And so you know he breaks free right and you know he takes one of the the most the, the, the beautiful yeah. the most beautiful ballerina as like his empress right which which uh <laughs> before we continue yeah. the idea the concept of their equality mm-hmm. by adding the, these handicaps to me is again is a funny concept because whoever's wearing the most weights whoever's like dressed the ugliest mm-hmm. you know that they're the stronger or they're more tra- so right you know by exclusion you're still mm-hmm. kind of showing up what yeah, yeah. So, I mean that, like, they become all the more marked, right? All the more othered, yeah, yeah. just because of that extraness to them. It's like a, a fault, like you said. It's a very superficial mm-hmm. idea of equality. Yeah, um, and so the citizens here, right, have given up of the U.S. Right, have given up their freedoms, mm-hmm. and they've been brainwashed into thinking that they're finally equal, um, except for Harrison. 
right? And so Harrison comes in, but of course he's got the wrong idea, right, of like what we should do when it comes to revolution. You know, he's like replacing one dictatorship with another. Right. To, to label himself emperor, right, mm-hmm. would already... Um, I've I've heard some criticisms uh, about this. Hmm. In fact, that he's he's really performing, hmm. <clears throat> and this is maybe taking another direction. Yeah. Plan, but the fact that he <laughs> decided to go on on TV on media to do this whole oh, thing. Oh yeah. You know his strategy, right? Hmm. If he's really the smartest, why wasn't he more strategic about That's his true. his uprising? Maybe yes. slowly free people. Who, right. Instead, he kind of makes this big thing, declaring himself emperor. And perhaps maybe, and and this this falls a little bit with Vonnegut. Mm-hmm. Vonnegut was someone who battled depression mm-hmm. quite a bit, and and so a lot of times people talk about how knowledge, uh, you know, just the more you know, the more depressed you are. Like mm-hmm. so, maybe maybe Harrison saw how futile it was, mm-hmm. and and kind of did like a death, like a huge like theatrical, mm-hmm. like I public see. death, like death by cop, essentially. Right, right. The martyrdom. Mm-hmm. Right, there's uh-huh. a, there's an element of that as well. Yeah. yeah, that's a very good point, and you know it should resonate with our students today, where we see, you know, many people who commit atrocities, and you know, someone who I know who covers the news was telling he's a producer mm-hmm. actually in in Albuquerque, and uh, he was telling me how, um, you know, the the media has a responsibility to of course cover that, right, but to the extent of the details of like you know sharing with the people how they went about doing so right the planning and, and strategizing i think he braced the point of whether they should censor that mm-hmm. you know because some of these other people who have the same idea right are getting the same strategy yeah you know of like turning on the fire alarm so that everyone you know gets smoked out and so forth um so there is that element of the spectacle mm-hmm. i think that's interesting i hadn't thought about that um and yeah, it, it's also, you know, you mentioned the dark humor, right? Right, right? And you said that, like, it's kind of just, you know, the one of Vonnegut's signatures, right, in his work. Yeah. Um, could you elaborate more on, like, what you found, the, where you found the dark humor and what you make of it, like, what he's trying to do with it? Right. Well, you know, there, there are moments within the story that, that come across as... I don't know if you're, if you're closely reading along that are, are almost completely snarky or sarcastic, mm. you know, uh, and, and to me, that's a little bit of, of Vonnegut's calling card. Anyone reading him closely enough might kind of, you know, snicker at it a little bit or uh, pick up on. So I was I was mm-hmm. trying to should have brought the work in with us, I think. Yeah. <clears throat> but there, there's just, uh, I think, to me, little moments that 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 to me escape outside the story mm. yeah um well that. that definition that you provided of dark humor okay right? so yeah <clears throat> well okay so if we go if we go into that right um earlier i was talking about how uh, i had seen a short film called milk mm. and and it the premise was essentially you know talking about an expiration date before a human mm-hmm. and it, a whole mythology around that but you know the director i guess at the introduction of the video um, you know, talk a little bit about the story, but he ge- he gave his definition for dark humor, for black humor, and uh, it's essentially, you know, <laughs> it's when you laugh when you know you shouldn't. Mm-hmm. And and again, uh, we've kind of mentioned this earlier, but there there's plenty of time where like this you have this this uh, 
society, this government mm -hmm. really bringing that, holding their people down, like not letting them think, right? Mm -hmm. um, can't like con consistently getting into their brains and, yeah. and preventing them from having independent thoughts, essentially. Yeah. You see that with George. Yeah. Um, it's a, it should be a terrifying thing, but there's these, these little moments, there's these a commentary that's snarky hmm. that's a little <laughs> sarcastic and, yeah. and that's kind of that satire bleeding through. And, 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 you know, it, for the, for students who aren't, aren't familiar with it, right? So satire here is, I remember if you remember Dr. Capel, when we covered satire way back in the day in grad school, right. um, you know, he, he kind of saw satirists as like these these great defenders of free speech because like not only are they willing to make these political points that are you know worth making right and and in some ways also expose them to you know dangerous situations right death threats and so forth but like they're using comedy to do so mm -hmm. and you know so it it's hard enough to make political make effective political you yeah. know but to make it comedic right that's and, really what makes it an art form right and rhetorically i mean that ha could be you know in, a, in society that's how we react to to comedy right it's, mm -hmm. it's kind of like a trojan horse mm. in a way of like we're laughing at this but at the meanwhile kind of there's these ideas being shown to us right presented to us you know the most famous of course uh, example of satire that that people refer to is jonathan swift proposing that they solve uh, two crises at once of of uh lack of food and an overpopulation like this let's just eat the babies yeah right <laughs> yeah it, it, you know such a great example and i'm actually reminded of like a teacher i heard about i don't know who but i heard this teacher was teaching it and wasn't teaching it as a satire um and uh. so that's the thing about satire right like you can kind of miss the point yeah. If you're not reading below the surface, <clears throat> which which is important, right? Mm -hmm. We encourage. In fact, uh, you know, I, I think uh, you also have to consider a little bit of absurdism. Mm. You know, I think I think with Vonnegut, you see mm -hmm. a little bit of that. And I think satire involves a little bit of absurdity. Yeah. Yeah. We do see some of that, you know, like they're up there, you know, defying gravity and all of a sudden. Right. I mean, it's kind of mm, that sudden death. Right. That comes from the quote-unquote handicapper general right the equivalent of attorney general right so it's almost yeah. like as if jeff sessions took a shotgun right <laughs> wow. to some escaped convict that's some image yeah just to give you an idea of what which happens again in here. reality would be terrible yeah yeah mm -hmm. and so it's kind of that lack of shock mm -hmm. you know that people are in i mean you could argue the people in the society are already because you said like they're suppressed in their thoughts they're already desensitized yeah now we and, we learn a little bit about that through their through the frame of his parents mm, right yeah. so I, I think that's where we kind of you're maybe leading to yeah yeah i mean um you know george and hazel right um so tragic as figures here um hazel at the end she realizes what happens and we know that be and it's just and, and it's a case of um of dramatic irony you know yeah. because so for my students so dramatic irony is when we know something that the character doesn't know so we know that that's their son um and hazel you know she ends um when so george comes back and hazel's crying you know so she has that cathartic moment and we know as readers that that's because like you know her son just got shot on live television right meanwhile you have uh, George here, 
And I know you you have your story. <laughs> what do you yeah. what do you like in this too? Yeah, that's my favorite moment really because it's that tragic irony that you know um, George simply got up you know just to grab a beer right. So it's like you're watching the Super Bowl right, Patriots Eagles, and you know the Eagles score on that Philly special right where um, you know <laughs> I don't know if you remember but. But um, you're in the in the kitchen grabbing yeah, a beer. You miss, you miss it. You miss it, right? You hear the roar of the crowd, but here there is no roar, right? It's just a shotgun. But you know everything falls to silence. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know he misses that, and I think because Hazel doesn't have the handicaps that George does, mm-hmm. it's an interesting thought experiment to think about whether George would have had a stronger reaction to that, right? You know, and whether he might have you know realized, okay, that's my son on there, you know. Um, and, and that's excellent writing by Vonnegut to set it up like that. Yeah. Like that kind of situation, um, you know, in the days before, you know, TiVo or whatever, you know, technology we have, right? right? Instant replay, right? D- didn't exist here. Yeah. Doesn't exist. Even though ironically, right, it's a future. Um, but the fact that there's this oppression of feedings is, I think, also important. Yeah, um, I, I feel like, uh, and and also it starts with with Hazel with yeah. a tear down her cheeks. It makes you wonder what what else they're watching on TV, possibly. Yeah, you know. Yeah, because I mean, it's such a passive form of consumption to them, yeah. but yet it's what brings about that catharsis in her mm-hmm. that she yet cannot recall, right? And so it's kind of like um, it's hard to characterize, but it's like you know how how to compare this to but like it's like having an experience and you know you feel the emotions of it but yet, yeah like you you have this amnesic moment you know um and so what does it mean to have a moment like that if you can't even remember it yeah. is is the whole tragedy of the thing brings up an interesting connection between memory and feelings yeah and, uh, yeah um because so many times you know nostalgia right functions in that way Mm-hmm. that we remember things and you know um, we feel what we felt back then because we can remember it so mm-hmm. really interesting in that regard um but you know Richie, i know you're short on time and uh yeah, i man. really appreciate um you know me have letting me come on you know the show that you have have here yeah gee um, that one was a doozy man <laughs> yeah right <laughs> you can say that again uh, um so we could finish, you know, by just um, if you could, if you wanted to plug uh, some of your shows in case there's, my students are interested in finding out more about what you do here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one, I, I hope you guys enjoyed the story. If not, hopefully you enjoyed us geeking out about it. You know, uh, that's what we do. <laughs> uh, but we're recording this in a studio called Power at the Pass here in El Paso. And it's it's uh, has many functions. You know, we do content creation and marketing and, and my on my end. Uh, I, I'm hosting a couple different podcasts. Um, one is the B-Woms podcast. And, and B-Woms, you guys have probably have heard about. It's uh, the Barbed Wire Open Mic Series. We've, we've been around in the city for about, we're going on our 11th year. We're award-winning, award-winning open mic. And, um, you know, the idea of the podcast, you know, for me was to kind of uplift, you know, talking about uplifting mm. um, the artists, the musicians, the poets, the storytellers in our region. 
the pulse of the city, as he called it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to me, it's a good way to to think about what's happening in the city. Is is uh, the pulse? Yeah, to tap into the pulse of the city and, and see what the writers are writing about, what the the singers are singing about, what the word so, on the street is. Exactly, yeah. and and so through the open mics, you know, I've met so many amazing artists, and so. You know, you can you can find it on iTunes, um, SoundCloud. You know, pretty much all major podcast platforms. Um, you know, check out the B Woms podcast. That's uh, B Woms B W O M S, and uh, this will be kind of helpful. Uh, I just recently started another podcast with uh, my friend Cynthia Lopez. She's an immigration attorney by day, mm. entertainment lawyer by night, mm. manager. Yeah. And uh, so we're starting a podcast called the Dream Podcast. Dream, and, and it's focused around dreamers. Mm-hmm. And so right now we're talk- tackling issues like DACA and, and really, again, talking about the government struggle, like the, yeah. you know, the problems they've been having. So you can find out more about those, and, and we encourage you to follow. I know, like, podcasts are kind of like the new thing. I mean, not new. They've been around for a while, but, like, yeah. this is kind of what's quote-unquote in. Yeah. And and it's, people like it because you can listen to it on their way to work back home from work uh doing chores dishes you know anything like that yeah um just i would encourage just get involved listen thanks for listening yeah Yeah. that's it well thanks again richie and i hope you guys enjoyed it um and when you know feel free to reach out to him thank you awesome peace